Welcome to Farm Food Facts for November 6, 2019. I'm your host, Phil Lunford. Remember to watch the new short film from USFRA, 30 Harvests, to see how farmers provide a source of healthy food while addressing environmental concerns for current and future generations. Go to usfarmersandranchers.org to watch the film. Today, we're talking with a single guest, Rob Trice, who is the founder of The Mixing Bowl. In 2013, he began to leverage his background in telecom, mobile, and internet venture capital to the application of information technology to the food and agriculture sectors. He is also the founder of Better Food Ventures, making seed stage investments aligned with the theme of applying IT to the food and agriculture industries. He's also an active member on the Advisory Council for Honor the Harvest. Rob, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thanks for having me. Why, why take the jump from telecom, all these other exciting things, and move it into food and agriculture? What made you want to do that? Yeah, so most of the time I'm supposed to answer you and tell I'm a fourth generation farmer or yeah, ranger. Yeah. I'm not at all. <laughs> My background's in venture capital, 15 years in mobile internet telecom venture capital. I joined that world at the end of 2000. And when I started, we were on 2G networks and we were talking about the potential of being able to read email on your phone, use location-based services. And it was an exciting time to see things like Wi-Fi really right. take off. And by the time of 2013, 2012, that space had become more mature. We had gone from 2G networks. Now we were talking about 5G networks. And I'd been going to the same conferences, talking to the same people for roughly 15 years. Right. And at the same time, I, I was sitting there kind of going, there's got to be something else out there. You know, Uber is disrupting transportation. Airbnb is disrupting lodging. Where else could we actually use technology to really change an industry? And at the same time, my wife left her job at Stanford, where she'd been working at the Wood Sustainability Institute, and she started running a cattle ranch. And so I was spending time on this ranch. And I kid you not, I mean, I watched these cowboys and they were pulling SD cards out of the weather station using Square at the farmer's market was a big deal for them. And it dawned on me that at that point that food and agriculture is 5 to 10% of the world's economy with substantial challenges. And at that time, Silicon Valley's IT innovation ecosystem hadn't really been dialed into food and agriculture. Right, right. And so I created the Mixing Bowl as a forum to go connect IT food and ag innovators. You know, arguably, we had the very first agri-food tech conference in Silicon Valley. And then also, given my background in venture capital, started making angel investments under the name of Better Food Ventures. You know, now if you fast forward, I've got three fantastic partners who are smarter than me in this area. I think you know one of them, Britta Rosenheim. Sure. Uh, even when I started the Mixing Bowl, people were asking me, do you know Britta? She's the queen of food tech. Yeah. And she's been looking at food tech and food media for 10 years. She's been publishing a food tech landscape map for eight years. She just came out with a new one available on our Better right. Food Ventures and Mixing Bowl website. And then also we're working with a woman named Shauna Day, who actually is a multi-generational Central Valley, comes from a farming family. I met Shauna when she was an investment banker in the mobile space in 2005. And she had actually come back from London to her small town in the middle of the Central Valley, Turlock, California, to look at how she could apply the first two loves of her life, agriculture and technology. And so she got in touch with Britta and started producing the ag tech landscape map. And then Michael is our other partner. I worked with him in the telecom world. And unbeknownst to me, the first 10 years of his career had been in restaurants. And Michael actually, with another colleague of ours named Chris, 
just co-published a, a landscape on indoor ag tech. And they came up with a thousand different companies, all looking at how IT can be applied to food and agriculture. So Britta's looking at, uh, I believe, over 4,000 food tech and food media companies. Shauna's looking at over 2,000 ag tech companies. Michael's looking at over 1,000 indoor ag tech companies. It's been tremendous to watch this space really mature. So I guess my first question is what I hear a lot from farmers is that 5G is going to be fabulous. That's going to help them to the nth degree. What I hear from a lot of technology people is we are years and years away from having 5G on farms. What's the reality? Somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, 5G will be helpful, but 5G is going to be really helpful mostly with broadband, right? So you're going to be able to download movies faster and so forth. I'm more interested in the narrow band. So how can we actually get small amounts of data from the back 40 of a farm? And that requires just basic connectivity. That will be much more important than being able to stream Netflix and HD, right. you know, in the corner of a farm or a right. ranch. So I think, you know, we've got to be more focused on just getting that general connectivity, particularly as we're starting to talk about things like connected robots doing picking. Well, if that goes down in a swale and loses connectivity, what happens, right? Does it have the ability to operate offline? It probably does to some degree, but for me at least, I'm more interested in being able to get that data off of sensors and get that off to the clouds. This is the other thing that a lot of people don't talk about is you have two challenges, right? So one is getting data off of the farm in the field to someplace, let's say the farmhouse. Mm -hmm. And then how do you get that from the farmhouse to the cloud? Those are substantial challenges. And a lot of people aren't thinking about that backhaul. And as we're doing things like sending drones out to the field and capturing HD video, you can get great pictures, but what are you going to do with them if right. you can't actually get right. them to the cloud and get them analyzed and stitched together with other data? So when I look at Honor the Harvest, a lot of it has to do with making our farming, making our planet better, more sustainable. And I know everybody hates that word, but I'll use it for a second. What role does technology play with sustainability, with making sure that we go beyond 30 harvests? So let me give you a couple different answers. Our group talks about the staircase for food and ag tech innovation. You got to crawl before you walk, before you run. And too many of my brethren in Silicon Valley are talking about how can we just drop robots into the field right. and fix food and ag? We're at the point right now where we have to go crawl and walk before we run. And before we can throw those robots out into the field, we have to go off and just digitize information. Then we need to manage it, measure it, then we can optimize, then we can automate. And if you look at each one of those steps as a staircase, the biggest barrier that we have to digitizing agriculture and food is the farmer's notebook, right? They're writing things down on pen and paper. We need that digitized so that we can start to create that data trail. Same thing, by the way, on the food side, which is, you got chefs who are calling in orders, faxing in orders for supplies. So it's not just farmers and, you know, looking at them as hayseeds wearing overalls. I mean, this is a challenge that is more than just a farmer challenge. So that's one. So just the basic blocking and tackling to get data off of the field and then be able to analyze that information that we talked about a little bit. But then there's a whole nother raft of technologies that are coming for the rapid iteration, discovery of new plants, 
new techniques, new machinery that will enable us to address challenges really quickly. You know, we could talk about things like things that will allow us to discover new plants, microbial beneficial soil amendments using discovery mechanisms based on the medical field, right? So we can look at these things for the rapid iteration. That And that's really, a, a, just to step back a little bit, one of our group's focuses looking at 2050 and how we're going to feed 9 billion by 2050 sustainably and economically, we think that's a bit of a, a false design challenge. But rather, how can we be looking at 2019 and inject more agility into our food system now so that we have a, a plethora of ways to address those shortages of food that are coming as population growth happens? But and this is where we're a bit agnostic on plant versus meat, indoor versus outdoor. Let's just see what sticks. Let's go develop all of these different solutions and let the market determine what's going to work or not, right? I want to go back to your first point because I want to say about six weeks ago, I went to uh, Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, home of mushrooms, and visited some mushroom facilities, very, very, very large mushroom facilities. And I use the word facilities because their mushrooms are grown indoors and so on. What shocked me, to your point, was how unmechanized growing mushrooms is. Right. And, and the problem that we've got in this country is the demand for mushrooms exceeds supply. Mm -hmm. So what we have is we have a lot of mushrooms being imported from other countries because U.S. mushrooms just can't offer the supply. So I was with the owner of, of the company and walking through and outside of each of these, you know, mini barns. And I want to say a building held maybe 20 of these mini rooms, for lack of a better barn, you know, three stories high and so on. There's a clipboard and everything has to be temperature controlled to the nth degree when it comes to mushrooms. And that's all mechanized. But what happens is a human being has to go into that room, outside of that room, I don't know, a couple times a day, whatever, and write down on a piece of paper, on a clipboard, what that temperature was. Yep. And I was shocked. And I said to he and, and his daughter, why is it that computerized? And they said, you know, this is the way we've done it always. Why do we need a computer? And I walked away from that. And to your point, you know, baby steps, if we can't digitize all this information, you know, it's the old garbage in, garbage out, we're never going to be able to get to the point of these robots. And, and I think when I look at Silicon Valley and VC money, what happens is they are, to your point, very excited about food, throwing hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars against food, but they really don't understand food. No, no. Well, that's, yeah. Okay, you, you're you're tweaking me in a couple different places. So one thing is, when we talk about fixing the food system, too often we think about agriculture in a monolith, and it's anything but. And so, so my wife's ranch that she runs is a tall, small little town called Pescadero, California, population eight hundred, I think, yeah. uh, and that's seven hundred and ninety nine cows. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, we, actually, we used to have twelve dairies right in that town, but right. now. We've got one, the last dairy in San Mateo County, which is a, a goat dairy. But we grow Brussels sprouts, English peas, kale. I mentioned kale. We grow a lot of kale, um, some berries and so forth. And what I have is an appreciation now that each one of these, we need to look at all of these different growing systems and where technology fits or where it doesn't. As an example, we've got two old Portuguese farmers in our town who grow Brussels sprouts. 
One uses the mechanized harvester for Brussels sprouts and has a crew of four. The other one doesn't use the mechanized machine and he's got a crew of, I think, 16 or 18. One is going after the chipped Brussels sprout leaf market that you might see in a salad. The other one- And value added. And well, value added, but the other guy is getting whole stock. He can sell them whole stock or he can sell a nice, perfect, round Brussels sprout in its entirety to a restaurant. So he's actually going for a more finished product. And so, you know, there's a, a cost benefit analysis that each one of these guys has done. We need to look at that at mushrooms and asparagus and dairy and cattle and commodity row. And this is, you know, we kind of boil it down to uh, four big production systems, specialty, commodity row crops, dairy, and livestock. And in each one of those, just at a, a mass level, we need to look at the maturity for the adoption of technology and where that cost benefit makes sense. And one of my big concerns right now, and going back to your analogy on, on mushrooms is where these things are labor intensive, if we don't get consumers to pay more for the sustainably produced food that we're asking them to produce according to regulations, those crops are gonna go away. And when those mushrooms aren't gonna be coming from Pennsylvania or California, they're gonna be coming from South America. We're already seeing this out here in California, the land of the fruits and nuts, with things like strawberries and mm -hmm. asparagus, where you're seeing operations just pick up and go to Mexico or Chile, just because there is more availability of labor and or the environmental regulations aren't as stringent. And so you can give consumers what most consumers are asking for, which is cheaper product, unfortunately. We're going to take a quick break for the news and then back with more insights from Rob Trice. Good facts. And now for the news you need to know. How the spring season's wet weather and flooding continues to impact agriculture. Despite the record-setting wet weather patterns which occurred in the Midwest this spring, the USDA surprised the agriculture industry with a report estimating that 91.7 million acres of corn were planted this year. Industry experts also found the USDA's lower-than-expected soybean planting estimate of 80 million acres to be surprising, as it's the smallest reported planting since 2013. Todd Holtman, lead grain market analyst at DTN, states the USDA's new three-crop total for corn, soybeans, and wheat acres is 217.3 million, down 8.8 million from 2018. According to the USDA, the market got the nearly 9 million acre reduction in plantings it expected. What was not expected was how the lion's share of the reductions went to soybeans. While the discussion and reflection continues around the acreage reports, the agriculture industry is anxiously hoping there's enough temperate growing season available for plants to move through their development, pollination, filling, and maturity stages before we face the first freeze of this fall season. And on the topic of extreme weather, we must keep in mind that no industry will be impacted by climate change as much as agriculture. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recently released a report which expressed that no other industry is so directly impacted by climate change than agriculture. Significant shifts in temperature, weather patterns, water accessibility, and pest populations put great stress on agriculture production. There are signs of these significant shifts in countries like Australia, where persistent hot and dry conditions have contributed to the deterioration of pasture conditions, rising grain prices, and low water supply. 
Here in the United States, one million acres of cropland were damaged in the Midwest after a cyclone storm and flooding in the spring of this year. Complicating matters is the anticipation that demand for food will grow as the global population continues its growth. And as we look to the future, what can we learn from the past? Farmers try to decipher what trends shown in the latest census of agriculture mean as they plan for their future. Of course, some of this information must be taken into context. By statute, USDA's definition of a farm includes some particularly small operations with only $1,000 in sales, so that can often skew some of the numbers. The USDA census was first conducted in 1840, and in recent decades, it has been done every five years. The figures released earlier this year are from 2017. The average age of farmers in this survey is 57.5 years old. That figures continues to rise. It was 55.6 years in 2012 and 54.5 years in 2007. Only 9.4% of farmers are under 35 years of age, but 27% are classified as new or beginning producers. That's the good news. And there are now more farmers than ever over the age of 65. There was also a large increase in the number of female farm operators. The latest census shows that 36% of producers are female. The Iowa Farm Bureau Federation economist Sam Funk reminds us that you can't always say the numbers say this or that. He explains that in some cases, the questioner definition may have changed or the technology involved changed. Despite that, the census does provide an important snapshot of agriculture that can be used in a variety of ways. One thing that the census clearly shows is that the makeup of agriculture is gradually changing. There are more women farming. The average age of the farmer continues to rise. About 39% of farmers don't work off the farm at all, but another 40% work off the farm for more than 200 days a year. Farmers who want to find out more can look online at the USDA's website. The Ag Census page even includes a query feature, so farmers can inquire about figures for a specific county or crop. And to continue our conversation about the mixing bowl, here's Rob Trice. Rob, welcome back to Farm Food Facts. Thanks for having me. What is the one thing about agriculture, farming, technology that has you the most excited? I'm going to put you to sleep right now because um, you want me to say some cool, you know, virtual reality or something yeah. like that. Open data standards. And when I say open, I'm not talking about every farmer needs to share their information. I'm talking about interoperable data standards. So my background in the mobile internet space is all based on standards. Think about a 3G standard so phones can talk to each other, right, right? right? Think about the internet. Where would we be with the internet without HTML? This is a really boring example. Phil, let's get together and, and have a calendar invite, right? Let's go watch a movie. I can tell you where we're going to meet. I can give that a title, a start time, an end time, a location. And those are all standardized. And now I can actually put calendar data on your calendar. That's because we have a standard for sharing mm -hmm. calendar information. We don't have ag XML. We don't have ag JSON. We don't have strawberry XML. We don't have asparagus XML. We need these things so that we can get data out of their silos. And there are some groups that are working on it, but it's not happening fast enough. And that's the one thing that I am most riled up about because my biggest concern, if I look at all of the investment into ag tech in particular, we've got to get this data 
out of the silos. And what I mean by that is every startup that you're going to talk to is going to say, well, I have an API, an application protocol interface, so that my data can communicate with another one. The problem is there's no translation engine in the middle to make sure that we're talking apples to apples, literally, right? Mm -hmm. We need that. And there's some good groups that are doing some good work. Ag Gateway is a nonprofit group out of D.C., the Purdue Open Ag Technology System Center out of Purdue, out of the Netherlands, you know, who's always ahead of us. They have a farmer co-op called Join Data, where farmers are actually coming together, setting up these standards, sharing data and collaborating. One of the, the benefits is once we have this interoperable data, that's where we can learn from each other. And so I mentioned my wife's ranch. Part of their mission is to look at how Rotational grazing can help with beneficial soil, healthy soils. And they have two biologists on staff that are from a group called Point Blue. And they're doing something called the Rangeland Monitoring Network. And so they're capturing data from 90 different ranches around California so that we have data that we're collecting in a a scientifically valid protocol that can be interoperable and analyzed. I'm going on a little bit about this, but it's so important because we need that data and we have to avoid the garbage in, garbage out problem, but we need that data so that we can fundamentally understand if I take this action on this kind of soil and this microclimate, this is the kind of expectation I should have in terms of sustainable benefit, whether that's an ecosystem service like water infiltration, carbon capture, anything like that. We need to amass that data set And we can't right now because we don't have that data sharing infrastructure in place. Rob, thanks so much for joining us on Farm Food Facts. Thanks for having me. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab and visit us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA. Until next time.